Welcome back to Imperfect World. I am your host, Christopher Hobson. Earlier this year, with the support of the Toshiba Foundation, I produced a series of conversations thinking through how technology interacts with and shapes our world. While the project is finished, my hope is to move towards sharing some occasional conversations here when the opportunity arises. In this episode, I speak again with my friend and colleague PC, an Australian-based academic. In our conversation, we focus on the challenge of trying to understand and respond to a world that appears to be declining or changing profoundly. Some of the questions we consider include, how do we deal with institutional decay? What concepts and frames do we use to understand what is happening? What historical parallels and intellectual traditions can we turn to for guidance? In exploring these issues, we think through some powerful connections with the late 19th and early 20th centuries and explore some interesting avenues. I thought as a way of starting our discussion, uh, I would commence with a quote that I've been thinking about recently from a 2015 article by China uh, Mierville and he says there's an arrogance to despair everyone thinks their own epoch is unique and the sense that it's uniquely awful is no less solipsistic or ahistorical than the belief that it's a culmination of a weltgeist but history is not endless recursion sometimes are worse in certain ways than others. Right? And I think in different ways, I think that's something we've been struggling with, right? That it's, it's easy to say, yeah, things don't look too good in the world at the moment as a kind of normative judgment. But then also you can probably empirically make that argument as well. Uh, sometimes are worse than others. So what do we do about that and how do we kind of make sense of that potentially being the case? And you know, in the most recent uh, piece that you wrote, I think this is something that, that you were pointing to, like the difficulty of thinking through the possibility that we are in this period of Dis, 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 uh, disintegration or entropy and what, what we do about that. Yeah, there's, there's, there's so much in there already. I mean, I think one of the things that really strikes me um, is that it's very difficult to grasp the precise flavour of the present. I mean, one of the things that I really noticed when I had COVID was that it messed with my sense of smell and replaced my sense of smell with a bad smell of it was a COVID smell in my nose and nasal cavity for, for several days. <laughs> so maybe the smell of the present is precisely the smell of that inability to discern the present and also the replacement of the ability to discern the present with some kind of like slightly disgusting viral load. Um, but there has been a few things like over the past kind of weeks and months, which seem like there's a signature of it, like, um, in the moment at Australia, like we're going through this prolonged La Nina period. And the La Nina period, the prolonged La Nina period comes hot on the heels of the two pandemic years that we've been living to, which comes hot on the heels of like these most devastating bushfires. Um, and it seems that every time something devastating smashes us, a year or two later, something with a completely different signature smashes us in a completely different way. And I was riding my bicycle through an area in the river down the hill from me a few weeks ago, and there was the stench of carpet and sofas and the contents of people's houses, which had been completely flooded when a number of different houses had been inundated by these floods. And there's a situation where, like, in any given week or weekend or three or four times a year, I'm kind of confronted with one of these things that reminds me precisely of the kind of century that I'm living in. Um, and I don't know exactly what the signature of it is, but I know that it does have a number of different unique smells. I mean, if you think about, like, um, the cities of Victorian England and 
the way that people would go to holiday houses down the coast precisely to get away from the smell of coal smoke and horse shit, you know, and also sewage. Um, in the 21st century, there's always this vague smell of plastic. I also associate that with Saitama in some respects. <laughs> um, but trying to look for kind of antecedents and models to, to think through this while still kind of like grasping the specificity of what it is and, and how what it tastes like and smells like and looks and feels like right now, it can be very difficult to grasp. I think there's something to this difficulty with naming the, the period that we're in. Uh, I've been thinking about this in the context of the way that I've been trying to think through this framing of polycrisis and you know when two started using it it struck me intuitively as potentially a useful way to think through the the current moment and well now that larry summers is using it i'm getting increasingly suspicious of it <laughs> uh but i think What's what I've been thinking about is we're kind of at a stage where we we need to have some type of name or description of where we're at and the end of the end of the history and the end of the end of the end of history kind of doesn't really work that well. Uh, yeah. It's it's clearly more than COVID or clearly more than the war in the Ukraine or whatever. Uh, you can, you know, do it in terms of fourth turning or, you know, Beck has metamorphosis. I think they're all in different ways trying to capture this same uh, sort of sense of uh, change, potentially entropy. And it's been really interesting noticing how many people have been drawn to the concept of polycrisis mm. Uh which senses, t which kind of indicates to me that I think, yeah, people are grasping for concepts or frames or ways of trying to make sense of of where we are uh, right now. And this sort of, like you're saying, this you know, the smell, right? Mm. <laughs> and I think where I differ is is you you can identify what the smell is, mm -hmm. right? Uh, Whereas I have a feeling for a lot of people, it's kind of like something is off, but it, like it's, it's when you, you know something is rotten in the fridge, but you can't actually find what it is that's rotten and making the smell. We actually, um, to, 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 to push that metaphor a little bit further, um, we, we actually were confronted when we went down to um, my in-law's holiday house the other week. The whole holiday house was full of this smell, but it was actually the refrigerator itself, <laughs> which had been destroyed by polycrisis and everything inside the refrigerator. So it was the smell of everything inside the refrigerator rotting. And I think what's really interesting about this is that about a year ago, there was a flash storm and a freak storm at the same place, um, including thunder and lightning. And I'm pretty sure that that fridge hadn't been working well since that storm had taken place. So there's some very complex causality there, but what you end up with is you open the door and there's this waft, which sounds a little, smells a bit like a dead possum, but is in fact the entire contents of the fridge. And even once the contents of the fridge have been removed from the fridge, the smell of the fridge itself dying, which is a very particular like smell of entropic industrial modernity. I was thinking back to, as you're talking about, I was thinking about geopolitics though. Like, I mean, it seems clear to me that this period of like, Anglo-capitalist hegemony by default from kind of like 72, 73 up until now, like half century or so, it seems pretty clear that that's over. But it's also seems clear, and I think this is something which I've taken from you in the past, that everybody's weak now. There is no predominance to replace the absence of that dominance by default. So we're in this very strange situation where Maybe it's a little bit like um, Carl Schmitt ended up talking about at the end of the Nomos of the Earth with this idea that, like, somehow we'd end up with these gross drama, like these big geopolitical blocks, but it's not even as neat and as kind of congealed as that. They're just these very large, messy kind of assemblages of people, things, and authority and territory still making claims and being aggressive towards one another, but all of them seem to be kind of, like, deflating at the same time. 
yeah, you, I think when you look at geopolitics, you see, and I mean, this could, I think, is, is not just the geopolitics, but a whole different layers. What you see is questions without answers and problems without solutions. And this, this gap between what is being asked and the capacity to respond. One of the things that I noticed like on an, a human and interpersonal level a lot um, this year is that um, people report back to me that they're feeling extremely overburdened in lots of different ways. You know, it's become kind of like a cliche to talk about burn, burnout. But I noticed that um, a lot of people seem extremely overburdened by by their lives. And one of the things that I really noticed just on a kind of anecdotal local neighbourhood level is that, you know, overburdened intervention overburdened overburdened individuals then ask more of other people you know both as a recompense and also compensation for things which they're unable to provide both for themselves and for others and so we have a dynamic at the moment it seems and this is like you know in in relatively very comfortable and prosperous australia where people are very close to overwhelm a lot of the time and constantly trying to kind of shield themselves from um, and defend against a number of different stressors in their lives. So they're constantly trying to like shed obligations and responsibilities, um, switch their camera off in Zoom meetings wherever possible. You know, you know, that's literally the case. And also I think a very symbolic, a strong symbolic act. And I'm really interested in about how people are withdrawing as a way of containing a lot of these different anxieties in response to the many ways in which the ordinary institutions of civil society um, are failing and failing to live up to the expectations which we also have of them. I mean, the question I have then is, like, are these expectations reasonable? Are we asking too much of our institutions? Are we let down by our institutions because we have some kind of idea that they owe us something? Um, and is it just simply that they're not capable, that we're, uh, you know, as often like asking, um, you know, cats to wag their tails and dogs to meow? I mean, the the language you're using is making me think of this uh, just incredibly powerful suicide letter by a Ukrainian yes, mathematician, yes. right, who's sort of saying, who's asking, is it unreasonable for me to have these expectations of the world? And he basically concludes that no, these these expectations are reasonable, and the world has has failed me. Uh, and it's it's such a powerful uh, letter, and it's and I have to say what I what really what I really another aspect that I really found really difficult about engaging with that letter is mm. after reading it then having to go and spend time trying to fact check to confirm that it actually was a real person and a real story. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? Um, which was just added a whole nother layer. And was it? From, yeah. from, what, I, from what I could tell. Uh, in, in a way, you know, on, on, on one level it doesn't matter because what, what is in that letter is true regardless of whether it is coming from a real person or not, uh, but it does appeal. It does appear that you know there was there was from a, a, a person who was captured by um, Russian authorities and he chose to to end his life. It does appear that that there was was the case, right? But then the fact that I can't even feel confident in the veracity of that uh, is also a reflection of, of where we are. Mm. There's a really there's a there's a paper which I read as a student, you know, quite a long time ago now, um, and it's by a Scottish woman who was interested in object relations, English Tavistock psychoanalysis, um, and she'd been working as a nurse, and she was trying to understand care and the provision of care and the difficulties of providing care. So she went through a number of different defence mechanisms which were used by the nursing staff to contain anxiety in working in an institution that was incapable of providing adequate care to people, often, you know, when they're in extremely vulnerable situations. So an institution like a hospital is continually trying and failing to care for the most vulnerable people at the most acute moments in their lives. But what was really interesting about reading it now is that 
The coping mechanisms you could almost talk about as kind of those of a Keynesian society and also were very typically British and of their time. And commonly what they did is they diffused responsibility upward and away from the individuals so that the institution itself willy-nilly became the shock absorber for the failings and the faults of every individual and thus none of the individuals alone had to bear the burdens of their inability or incapability of providing the care that other people needed when they failed to be able to care in the way that they needed to for those people. And looking at the institutions that I've moved through as a person living through this like half century of de facto Anglo-capitalist predominance, it's very clear that one of the kind of psychosocial effects of neoliberalization, you know, in a society of competitive individuals is that a lot of the different coping mechanisms which we use at the moment do actually push a lot of the pressure and anxiety and responsibility back down onto individuals themselves and out of the institution. And so that the institutions themselves become shells or shell games or, um, you know, as we sometimes, as I sometimes talk about contemporary university, just as a wealth transfer racket. Um, and the trouble is that, that the institution becomes effectively just this heartless shell, which nonetheless still has to carry the lives of different cohorts of extremely vulnerable people. And that leaves us with a very different set of problems. So what you might have found like with, you know, the nursing service in Britain in the 1960s is like really inadequate levels of care um, and no one you could really complain to. So you might have been mistreated in a hospital um, and you would have just basically said, oh, well, you know, my husband died because they were not cared for properly. Oh, well, et cetera. These days, if you're in the city and you're middle class um, in a city like Tokyo or Melbourne, then you're probably going to get an excellent standard of care. But a lot of the people as individuals who are going to be working in that institution are themselves going to be very close to burnout and nervous breakdowns because of the way in which anxiety is structured as and by those institutions in a broader kind of cultural context. Well, but I mean, on that, I think this is perhaps part of the reason why, for instance, uh, the idea of polycrisis is actually getting the kind of resonance mm. That it, that it is, is actually, sorry, because I was going to say that. Yeah, go, sorry. I was just going to say that polycrisis might still be a good idea even when people that we don't so much love also even <laughs> becomes popular. Although it's more like <laughs> it just made me suspicious, made me suspicious. Uh, but I think it, it certainly captures something of the present moment. And I think part of that is because what you're saying, what you're suggesting there about, you know, the assumption that if, um, you're in a, a highly developed economy and you are, uh, have a certain level of, of economic and social um, status, then uh, institutions work. And it seems like that's, that's, that's starting to fray or break down, right? And what happened over there is starting to come here. Absolutely. Mm. And, you know, this is like the, the the really great article about the Brazilianization of the world, right? That Brazil is not, not becoming more like us, we're becoming more like Brazil, right? Or the way that the the first world is being third worldized to, to use Cold War terminology. Mm. And this the, this kind of dissonance mm. that these problems are happening here is perhaps part of why you have this intuitive kind of resonance with this framing in terms of crisis and multiple crises. It's happening to me. It's happening to us now. There was another, I think maybe perhaps we shared it, but... Um, for those listening, there's also another really excellent New Yorker long, um, New Yorker featured by Daniel Alarcon about um, the first wave of COVID hitting in Costa Rica. Um, I'm not sure if we shared that with one another, but that was just a, a really beautiful piece of writing on this. And it's precisely the same set of dynamics that you're talking about. Um, yeah, really quite heartbreaking. But this combination of just extremely visceral in experiences mingling in an urban environment with the banality of everyday life and people just getting on with it and experiencing moments of joy at the same time. <laughs> yes. 
but there's a, I think there's a, you know, a really powerful lesson from, from the COVID experience, which is one which I think I also learned during uh, my experience with the, the triple disasters in Japan is humans have a really amazing and horrible capacity for adjusting. Right. And we find ways to deal with very abnormal things and, and life does go on. And there is something, you know, remarkable in that, but also it kind of allows for us adjusting down when that's perhaps not the response that, that we ultimately would need. And ultimately, this, this takes place in the absence of adequate institutional memory. Um, like, you know, for, for yourself and myself as people who've, like, led privileged lives and we're at the tail end of remembering the, the excellent aspects of how good universities could be, um, grappling with the, the general direction of travel now um, is really interesting when I encounter um, undergraduates whose parents never went to university and who have no historical or other cultural counter-reference for how it might have been otherwise. This is just how it is. Um, and that they're dealing with a different set and their own set of parameters, but often in the absence of a kind of a cultural memory which would suggest, no, no, this is a contingent situation and things have been otherwise in the recent past and sometimes better. Yeah, I mean, I think a, a really important part of that is us in, you know, the global north, uh, reaching a, a period of, of stability and also generational change where the, effectively we have had widespread peace, peace and stability for a considerable period of time. And really following the Vietnam War, that was kind of the last conflict which really had a sort of a societal impact, right? And since then, conflicts are either not there or they're externalised by being taken care of by professional armies that do not interact with the wider community. And so we've ended up with uh, leaders, whether political or across other parts of society, who, who really have no serious grasp of the stakes of, of things really going wrong. Uh, at 27 years and counting since Australia's last recession is, is, the, is the news article that the, the, the PC is holding up. Uh, but I mean, like, you know, Stephen Walt makes this really basic point about American foreign policy. It's America's been so secure, it's, it's been able to not be particularly serious. <laughs> Yes. Right. And that's something I, I, I think a lot about, that not just institutional memory going, but a kind of a wide, you know, a, a really widespread memory of, of what happens when things really, really break and things really go wrong and actually come full circle is here you can actually kind of point to a very clear, rationale and motivation which drives both Xi and Putin because mm -hmm. they have a much more visceral uh, sense of what the stakes are. Correct. Right? Yeah. What happens when regimes collapse and not wanting that. That's, that's right, yeah. Um, like the title of that, that famous book about um, fascism in the US, I think maybe with Substance Sinclair, it can't happen here. There's the sense that there's, there's, there's some kind of halo, some causally magical halo, which will indefinitely sustain the unreality in which we, we, we currently continue to live somehow. Yeah. Um, yeah. And the reason, the reason I held up the thing with the GDP growth is like Australia is really a paragon of this as one of the OECD countries where in living memory, in living memory for like very large numbers of people, you know, for, for the middle class, basically there hasn't been a major event which is, would would lead anybody to even vaguely question the whole mode of existence and their way of life as well as their complete entitlement to continue smoothly and comfortably benefiting from how this status quo has been 
in living memory for a very long time. And that's, I think that's quite unusual, maybe unique in human history as far as we know it. Maybe there are other. Well, on that, let me, let me, let me read you a quote. And I think now is a really opportune time to move to something which uh, I think we've been circling about. So first quote, there was progress everywhere. Who dared won. If you bought a house, a rare book, a picture, you saw its value rise. The bolder and more ambitious the ideas behind an enterprise, the more certain it was to succeed. There was a wonderfully carefree atmosphere abroad in the world. But what was going to what was going to interrupt this growth? What could stand in the way of the vigor constantly drawing new strength from its own momentum? That's that's Zweig, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, the thing about Zweig. You know, as as that the the commentator who's on um, Wikipedia said, you know, he's he, he tastes like Pepsi. He tastes fake, right? Like, in, and oh, I didn't see that. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's in the Wikipedia on Zweig. Like, he was so smooth, and he was such a smooth cat, and he was hanging out with Freud and Romain Rolland, and you know, translating all the good and the great, and kind of like globe trotting around Europe, and the most popular guy in the twenties, and all that stuff. But I mean, the thing about Zweig is that like. First of all, he seems like a morally serious individual. And the second thing that kind of really proves this is that he and his wife killed themselves in 1942, right? So I don't, for me, like nobody who kills themselves uh, for the reasons that they did uh, <laughs> is Pepsi, <laughs> you know? Mm. And so when knowing that about him and yet that he wrote that particular paragraph about the world of security and this idea of just everything just going gangbusters for decades. What does it mean to write a book like that and to look back on the age in which you've lived and to describe it so smoothly and so confidently in that way and then to treat it as so irreparably gone that you're like, okay, good night, et cetera, et cetera. I'm still thinking about, I don't have an answer to that either. That's, that's him talking about a hundred years ago, but it could easily be, you know, be describing the nineties. Right. And one of the, you know, where, where we started was this difficulty with trying to talk about and frame this period that we're in. And both of us, I think, have been thinking about, well, where can we look for ways of thinking about and understanding this period. And there's, I mean, everyone always jumps to, to interwar and fascist because that's always the easiest, right? So it's always, it's always an interwar kind of reference. Uh, everyone in economics is, seems to be jumping mm. to the 1970s, uh, not, not without cause. Uh, but, you know, I think both of us have really been going a bit further back and thinking about the late 19th, early 20th century. And uh, another thinker that we've both been uh, you know, looking at, Robert Musil, mm. described this period as, I quote, a time devoid of ordering concepts. Yeah, it's, it's, it's really extraordinary. And the whole, the Germanophone world, the privileged centre, the privileged Germanophone centre, like around Viennese culture of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, you know, from the 1860s, you had this like really imperfect settlement between an ascendant liberalism and the old aristocracy. You know, you have feudalism and a degree of like Habsburg imperialism going on, incredibly rapid urbanisation, like massive cultural changes. Um, and at the same time, yeah, a, a groundlessness, which becomes really visible by the 1890s. <laughs> and then this kind of like slow and then sometimes very fast, complete disintegration, like absent all of the other things which were going on and kind of like led into the maelstrom of, of World War One. Um, yeah, it's quite astonishing. And, and the more I'm reading, the more I'm learning about it as um, I want to also say beforehand, though, like, before I continue with this, I was thinking back to my youth and I was thinking about 9-11 because we were talking about just the US and a certain sense of invulnerability and you were contrasting the US leaders in contrast to like Xi and Putin as people where it didn't really have to be serious because nothing ever serious really happened. And, you know, 9-11, something serious 
happen for once. And I remember at the time in the early 2000s, um, uh, following Slavoj Žižek's uh, public interventions around uh, post 9-11 and leading into the invasion occupation of Iraq, especially, uh, and then around uh, interrogation techniques at Guantanamo and the humiliation, sexual humiliation and torture of a grave. And I feel like, especially both with Zizek's works for public audience then, but then also with the work of um, Giorgio Agamben and Homo Seca, this might have been like the last time in critical theory where like a set of concepts were kind of like held to be capable of giving a conceptual explanation of what was happening in the world. I mean, they're worth being suspicious of then. Um, and I think if you look back at them now, they're kind of like embarrassingly wrong, but I kind of feel like part of the falsity of that moment was that it could be encompassed with a set of concepts. And one of the th kind of things that I've been left with, and this is where we come back to the whole Austro-Hungarian disintegration, is that I'm not even sure that conceptual thinking can get us there. I think we ought to try, but I've become suspicious of any of my own conceptualizations, and most of all, of the ability of any theorizations, whatever they may be, however they may construe social reality as a way of encapsulating either the political present and or using historical comparisons to provide adequate explanations of what's going on. I still keep reading theory and history, <laughs> but I've become extremely sceptical even of the ability of the best thinkers, let alone myself, to be able to use language and concepts to describe and to analyse and thus to kind of try to understand and give meaning to, to what is going on. Um, and what has been going on. I'd push back a little bit there in terms of, you know, we, like, I think it wasn't necessary. Like, I think even at the time you could kind of get a sense of this was a really bad idea. <laughs> like you didn't, you know, and, and especially being outside of America, and you know that period of late two thousand and one, two thousand and two into two thousand and three, there was just this horrible collective feeling of like we are getting pulled into something that is a really bad idea, and it's pretty obvious it's a really bad idea. And the one thing that we really got wrong was we underestimated how bad of an idea it was, right? Because we, we guessed a whole bunch of bad things were going to happen, like sectarianism in Iraq, but none of us guessed you were going to end up with, you know, a version of terrorism that made Al-Qaeda look like, you know, Boy Scouts. Yep, right? absolutely, yep. And, and so I feel like with that, like, for instance, like with COVID, we can, we can hash around, okay, these were bad responses, these were better responses, I think there was a real degree of uncertainty, especially at certain pivotal moments, about how to respond, how to prioritise, how much faith we should have in certain models and these types of things, right? And I, I feel like there was a really genuine unknownness. Mm. And in a way with 9-11, yeah, there was a degree of unknownness, but it was much more clearly a bad response. <laughs> and, and also an unknownness that was related to like an extremely powerful B-grade narrative that we were going to be pulled into. Like it's really, it's true lies. It's Crimson Jihad. Like we're going to be pulled into like one of Schwarzenegger's worst <laughs> movies and it's going to cost a trillion dollars and produce Islamic State and we'll have nothing to show for it and it will be. And sure, a bit. so in terms of theory, and I want to go back to, Zweig again, right? Because he was, he talked about his age as the age of security. And that's really interesting because Herman Brock picks up on this and Hannah Arendt both picks up on this and they both sort of say no. <laughs> but the, there was a name of the age. But, but I think that there's something like, as you were saying with 9 11, like, and it gets back to the nose, you know, the ability to sniff, which is what, what's annoying about COVID. Like, um, you knew it was bad. <laughs> I feel I feel I'm 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 not um I'm not a scholar of geopolitics unlike you, but like 
with Ukraine, the invasion of Ukraine, I, I, I just know this is really bad. <laughs> this is a bad idea. Um, I don't know exactly where it's going to lead, but it was and has been and continues to be an extremely terrible idea. And when we get into a scenario where a country like Russia, for all of its imperial and military greatness, is using swarms of drones to knock out the power supply of a country that's relying on electricity for its urban populations going into winter, so that the strong opponent is using these asymmetrical techniques just to really destroy and demoralise an urban population in that way and just to go blow the belt like that, that's bad. That's just a really... Yeah, I mean, but I think that that's also... It's a... I mean, on one level, I think you really... The one guarantee you have with conflict is bad outcomes, right? And it's kind of a simplistic observation, but it's, I think it's also a really, really important one. Look at... Look at Syria, right? The the end result of Syria, which everybody has forgotten about, right, is a decade of conflict, the country wrecked, and the you know the Assad regime is still there, right? And and the only clear outcome is everyone is worse off. That's correct. Yeah. Right, and. On, on some level, you know, I, I think the the strategy of, of Russia or whatever they're doing, I think you need to start recognizing what, like, in what in what worlds it makes sense to do that, uh, and and then also think about what that suggests in terms of 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 where the conflict might be going in the future, uh, but you know the 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 downside and the you know what bad outcomes really look like that's something it's really worth seriously engaging with right and you know this is also when we, this is this is really the parallel with uh, the late nineteenth century because another aspect of the late nineteenth century is in a way that description of it being the age of security was partially correct right because. After the French Revolutionary and Napoleonic Wars, you have about a hundred years of relative peace and security inside Europe. You, you have you don't really have any major uh, great power kind of conflict, like no systemic conflict, right? And everything is displaced through the colonies. Um, yeah, through aggression, yeah. right? Uh, but within your, within the core, you do have a degree of stability, right? And and so then, famously, you know, right on the on the edge of World War One, you have people saying, "Yeah, world peace is here. We've found the solution." Mm. And and then that's where it, when it when it kind of all comes crashing down. So you also have there this maybe um, overconfidence that uh, things are, are more stable than than they actually were, right? And and then also I think a blindness to the really significant forms of violence and dispossession that were part of that age of security. Which is which is all the way through Zweig as well. Like there's that moment towards the end where he visits India and kind of realises there's a world outside of Europe. Um, also, you know, because one of the things where um, Brock comes back on Zweig and his ilk, I mean, he's talking about von Hoffmann's style really, but, um, this the opening character, uh, sorry, the opening uh, paragraph of his Hugo von Hoffmann style, his time, he says that, speaking of Vienna and the Ringstrasse, you know, the essential character of a period can generally be deciphered from its architectural facade. And in the case of the second half of the 19th century in Vienna, the period of Hoffmannsthal's birth, that facade is certainly one of the most wretched in world history. This was the period of eclecticism, a false Baroque, false Renaissance, false Gothic. Wherever in that era Western man determined the style of life, 
That style tended towards bourgeois constriction and bourgeois pomp to a solidity that signified suffocation just as much as security. If ever poverty was masked by wealth, it was here. So, yeah, that's... So maybe this is one way... Sorry, yep. I mean, this is really... I, you know, um, I never got to write my book on Melbourne, but, you know, Melbourne was by many measures the wealthiest city in the world in the 1880s. And it was the second biggest city in the British Empire in that time. And it was like paragon of Victorianism. And all of this stuff, you know, this, there was this constriction of all of these, you know, Victorian architectural facades just hiding, just rampant land appropriation. You know, then the gold rush, turbocharging a really dodgy set of real estate speculations that all completely fell in a heap and bankrupted the state government until the 1970s. <laughs> so all of these things, whether it's the, the Ringstrasse development in Vienna or Victorian Melbourne, um, and if you can find some, if I can find some photographs of Victorian Melbourne from the time, we had brick skyscrapers with, you know, pneumatic elevators. I mean, it was really deluxe. It was the highest per capita champagne consumption of any city in the world. <laughs> you know, it's funny because um, the two cities that were really popping off at that time were um, Melbourne and St. Louis. Um, and it's kind of gone okay for Melbourne. You know, we've got the tennis and, you know, it's livable, whatever else. It just didn't quite work out <laughs> at all for St. Louis. Um, but it's interesting how these things at the time, even at the time, like even when you're kind of like at the centre of the centre or of this, at the centre of that peripheral centre, like in the case of Melbourne, the 19th century was still a time of like theft, extraordinary theft, like world historical theft, more or less. And all of this technical progress was really masking just rampant, like land appropriation, taking shit, digging shit up, and then um, selling things in, under really dodgy uh, circumstances. Well, yeah, maybe I think it would be helpful to also think sharpen the comparison, especially for those who maybe don't have a strong sense of the sort of dominant forces of, of that era, right? And so I think obviously one of the most defining characteristics is is really capitalism starting to, to really get going and basically capitalism without checks and restraints, right? So um, you have a very unrestrained, rapacious form of capitalism, and this is generating incredible economic growth. Uh, You have remarkable technological progress, also remarkable progress in the sciences, in, in, in medicine and in health, uh, you also have increasing ease and speed of uh, communication and transportation. You have a then unprecedented level of globalization and interaction. So the world is is getting richer, is getting faster, it's getting more integrated, is getting more connected together. Uh, you also have in uh, parts of Western Europe uh, this coming with political change and some degree of political opening, but that's perhaps less a distinguished feature. You have um, cultural innovation as well, right? So you have all of these really significant signs of progress and advancement, and then continue. Yeah, I was just going to say, in, in Eric Hobsbawm's account of this, he's also really adamant that if you look back at the historical record, there was an, it was an adamant belief that there was also moral progress taking place in the midst of this. Now, we might look back at that and say, ha-ha, but, you know, in the midst of all of this exploitation and alienation that authors like Marx are picking up, people believed that things were getting better morally as well as technically, socially, politically, etc. Yeah, and there were plenty of signs that things were getting better, right? And... There was also then this, 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 you know, really incredible set of disavowals, right? So you have uh, freedom inside Europe coming at the expense of imperialism outside. You have growth, economic growth built upon exploitation, right? And so you have these 
dark sides, which are very, very present. And, you know, certainly on any kind of account that has to be, you know, these dark sides being, you know, a worm in the apple, right? And you then, I think, and, you know, Vienna is really the kind of fulcrum of this. You have this uh, increasing speed, sense of progress, uh, but then there's also this sort of sense of things careening out of control, right? And so this sort of sense of detachment, kind of loss of bearing, and this sense of confusion. Uh, there's this you know, great quote from Musil's Man Without Qualities, reality no longer makes sense. Mm. Yeah, yeah, uh, and and also from I'm still thinking about Austria-Hungary at the time. So, so if I'm thinking by the 1890s, you know, if you take a city like Vienna by the 1890s, it was really a multicultural city. Um, but at the same time, you know, one of the ways that populists were making sense of this was via romanticization of the Volk and the nation. And so a lot of these kind of like strands of populist and later racial and certainly anti-Semitic and definitely pan-German nationalist thinking were picked up by a young Adolf Hitler in 1908 by the time he ends up in Vienna. Like it was all brewing up, you know, this completely transformative urbanisation process which turned Vienna from a city of half a million into two million, I think, if I can get the figures, not only created like exploitation for all of the people, a lot of them ethnic Czechs, you know, and Ruthenians, Ukrainians who were coming and doing all of the dirty work for the Viennese, like Zweig's family. Um, but that, you know, like ordinary working class Germanophone Austrians started to make sense of this in increasing numbers by blaming groups of people who were held to be the beneficiaries, such as the Jews and internationalists. Um, and by taking kind of a romantic refuge in uh, the mythology of the Volk and a sense of the Germanness of the nation, and, and it didn't end so well. Yeah, it didn't end so well. But it's it. So if we then think about, well, we are in this this age of like lacking ordering concepts, mm. and we we lack the the language to talk properly about where we are. Uh, I think both of us sort of have the sense that by turning to this period where you have people dealing with similar types of problems mm. in terms of trying to describe what is kind of indescribable, uh, Maybe that is, it doesn't necessarily provide us with concepts, but it, it gives us some clues. Uh, I'm still not completely sure what exactly we can take from it beyond a kind of comfort that what we're experiencing is not maybe as, as unique as it might feel. Uh, but I, there have to be some some clues or or things we can take from from that period. Yeah, I'm, as as you're speaking, I'm having this kind of thought, and I know it's in a Wittgenstein quote, um, but I can't find it fast enough. That 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 every era fails to understand its own era. Every era thinks its own. It's in crisis. Uh, and every era is, I'm completely bolderizing the Wittgenstein here, but it's basically shit in its own way. <laughs> um, and so this is a perennial set of issues. We're forever confused. Like, I've got another, the, the Musil quote here because. Yeah, but no, but this, this comes back to right where I started because uh, sometimes are worse than other times. <laughs> yes. Right? Like, we. We do, I think we are constantly faced with problems and issues and changes and uncertainty, but there are periods of history which are more consequential where regime sh shifts do happen and 
I think we need to find a way to to recognize that, and I don't know how we fully do so, but yeah, sometimes are worse than other times, and I feel like now is that kind of time. <laughs> I, I um, as you as you probably guessed from the the you know the blog the Simpsons riff in the blog post that I had, I, I feel like we are kind of living through the blurst of times right now. <laughs> yeah, we haven't managed to quite. Right, Dickens about this one. I, I uh, yeah, the, so because crisis is also this overused frame. Yep. Right, and it's kind of a debased currency, but then it it also captures captures something, and how to. Yeah, makes sense of where we are, right? This and it's really interesting because we've been talking about this for an hour, and mm. we're feeling a way around it, but we haven't really necessarily kind of resolved it in any way, right? We've got I don't some, think it, I don't. So go ahead. No, I was just going. We've got some clues, but I don't think it can, except by way of some kind of false concreteness. You know, it would only be by positing some kind of like perhaps better than others narrative about what is. Um, but that would be, it would just be a story and it could be a powerful and beautiful story, but it's bound not to be true eventually. The world is not a story. But, you know, we use stories to make sense of it, right? And, so and we must. Yeah, and so, but this is, you know, and this is interesting. This, you know, we always circle around our same references, right? So this is Adam Curtis's point that we've, we've lost narratives, about ourselves and our futures and we need to actually create new narratives. And so what Curtis is, is interested in is, is, well, how can we actually generate hopeful narratives uh, or expansive ways of, of thinking about the future? And this, again, is, I think, something which I struggle with a little bit is you see it, I think, this most strongly with, with climate change, this really kind of aggressive catastrophism and I really wonder how successful that is as a frame for, for motivating, motivating behaviour. Could we talk a little bit about just for, I don't want to talk about it too much, but um, the group of activists who um, were throwing tomato soup on the Van Gogh last month or so does that time stamp the discussion too much fire away i don't actually know it so. um, yeah i've been sort of i've been blocking out daily news media because i just i don't find it's particularly insightful for what's going on it's both too much and too little information um yeah it's like a too frequent a too frequent dose of poor quality information it's not really quite right um, but one of the things that sort of popped up with um, some of the people I'm in regular conversation with on the chat threads I'm on um, was this particular action undertaken by two individuals. Um, and I should say like associated with Extinction Rebellion, but anybody can nominate and do an, a direct action as part of Extinction Rebellion. That's part of how it's structured um, through tomato soup on a Van Gogh painting. Um, and one of the things which was really interesting to me about that is that you could almost predict exactly what the commentary about that particular action was going to be based on people's existing ideological commitments. And very predictably, you had a group of people coming out saying, this is a really bad idea because this particular set of tax tactics draws attention away from the substantive issue and makes it all about this particular action and end up in a meta-debate about the merits or not of this particular action. Then you have the Andrew Bolts of this world literally writing an op-ed piece on another example of how this is the youth who have no respect for the fruits of culture and Western civilization. And at the same time, we're left with a situation where the process is still happening um, and even, you know, bodies who are as radical as the United Nations um, are at Sharm el-Sheikh telling us that climate change is a, you know, runaway train and we're on a highway to hell. I think that was the 
the, the two things which were used together. Um, I mean, they were in Sharm el-Sheikh, so that can really kind of colour color your worldview. Um, there doesn't seem to be an action that individuals or groups are capable are of which has the measure of the time in which we live. So there's an incommensurability between all of these processes which are unfolding and the kind of causal and effective change which are there and what people, even well-organised, well-motivated groups of people, are capable of doing in the midst of this. So there seems to be this kind of fundamental impotence or incapability, both of us individually and collectively right now, that all, all we can do is go to Sharm fly to Sharm el-Sheikh and say we're on a highway to hell, um, or, you know, throw soup on a Van Gogh, or denounce people who throw soup on a Van Gogh. But we can't really stop climate change. But uh, maybe to connect these to these different levels together, right? The, the United Nations is is both the best that we have and a profoundly dysfunctional system. Yes, and I, I say I say that with experience inside it, and. To the extent that I, that I even, you know, wonder whether its existence is impedes better solutions, right? And to connect that to the individual level, right? There's, I think, there's a sense that, yep, people smell it. Right? Mm. The institution, the institutions are not working. Right, the the stories that we're being told don't don't make sense. Right? That refrigerator is broken and uh, full of rotting food. Yeah, <laughs> and the COP negotiations are clearly, clearly, clearly insufficient for what we're kind of what you know. If the problem is as severe as what they're saying, then that is a solution is completely, com- completely inadequate. Right, and so this. The sense that the institutions are not enough, our concepts are not enough, our frames are not enough, but not really knowing how to how to talk about or how to act in response beyond there just being this manifest sense. This smells bad. One of the things I really admire um, Franz Neumann for after the war is that he went back to West Germany and really felt that one of the things that he could commit to as someone who'd been a Marxian and Jewish intellectual who had been exiled by the Nazis was precisely to go back to Germany and help to rebuild the institutions of education in West Germany. Um, and I think that's a really um, <laughs> a courageous and mature perspective Courageous not only just as a Jewish person going back to West Germany in the early 1950s, but also because anybody who engages with the difficult normative work and practical work of building institutions knows that it's going to be very difficult, any gains you have a piecemeal, and it's never going to be completely satisfying like a delicious ice cream dessert. It's it's going to be years of hard work and a lot of setbacks. But it seems like on a positive note, that's one of the things which we must do somehow is try to work somehow to help build the build and defend the institutions, the wounded institutions, um, which we need to support one another's lives. Um, but there's very difficult. And the other side of it is that, like, with alongside climate change, I know that Alexei Navalny has his own agendas and so on, but he did an op-ed piece about a year ago um, saying that really institutional corruption is the core issue of the contemporary period. Um, And I really do fundamentally agree on that because we're not really going to get anywhere with anything else unless we can actually use institutions effectively somehow in order to combat these things. How one goes about that, mind-bogglingly difficult and fraught problem. But So just to to riff on that, I would add to that, I think it's not just institutional corruption, but I think it's also institutional entropy and institutional failure. So I think you... You also have these institutions you're not working the way that they were supposed to, right? So the way the UN has evolved, it's just become you know layers and layers and layers of bureaucracy. 
and but then also the, just simply that the the problems, the questions being asked of these institutions uh, are really different to what they were designed to answer. Yep. Right. And and so this is, I think, where it's really difficult is can these institutions be reformed enough, seriously enough, for them to actually... Mm respond to the kind of challenges that we we face no no but nonetheless <laughs> we must try we must try yeah i see this i mean you know we, we've spoken about this a lot but one of the things i noticed um coordinating large undergraduate subjects is that like i do have a proliferation of new de facto roles which are not in my job description but which i perform and to me, this gets back to this sort of like a society of overburdened individuals is one in which people are not capable of giving enough themselves and so then ask more of others. Um, and certainly what I find is that, as you know, like one of the big informal jobs that I have to do now is um, mental health triage um, with vulnerable young people who are my students that I have a duty of care to both have a pedagogical relationship with and I also don't want them to fall through the cracks. And this is something which um, was largely absent from my work in universities 15 years ago. It's something which has emerged and it's emerged for a lot of really complex societal reasons, um, which are, you know, psychosocial and cultural and all different kinds of things. But the, the net effect of that, and I think this is true with so many people working in so many different roles, is that work is itself extremely complicated now. Yeah, I mean, on that, I think... Uh... Like Nancy Fraser's recent set of arguments around cannibal capitalism uh, are not quite as satisfying as what I would have hoped, but she's really strong on this aspect of, of, of capitalism relying upon care mm. and then effectively the way that neoliberalism kind of works is really undermining and eroding all the systems of care, right? And so you kind of have care deficits. And also, like, you know, with a lot of the reward structures in different neoliberalized institutions, um, there's a de facto ransom. Mm. Because from a career point of view, it's much better for you to give your labor to writing grant applications and pumping out papers than it is to care for the student who emails you with a time-consuming and complicated request. And the institution is going to starve you of just enough resources where you have to make a, a choice the moral choice of actually supporting the vulnerable person who needs your support or fitting your mask before assisting others and saying, sorry, I don't have time for this. I've got to write my grant report. Right. Mm. And, and giving that conundrum to us on purpose as a way of dynamizing a system in which resources are made scarce enough so that this kind of hunger games will kind of like play itself out and be intrinsic motivations, which people internalize and take on um, and drive people mad. <laughs> and, and mean that people behave in shit ways towards one another, right? You know, but it does dynamize the system, that competitive individualism, and you do have to make these choices and trade-offs all the time. You know, you really, one cannot possibly provide all the support that one really needs to and also be a really successful academic anymore. Not possible. So, hunker down, but then hunker down doesn't work, right? And it doesn't work. <laughs> yeah. So maybe as a way of trying to to pull this conversation together, I mean, I think what's really interesting is 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 the way that we're circling around these themes and ideas and really struggling to to, to really kind of pin them down, even if maybe our we're circling around them in a kind of a closer circumference than before. Mm. Uh, and yeah, one of the things I, I just wonder about is, 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 is yeah, problems without solutions and question, mm -hmm. questions without answers. And I think that's at least partly where I end up with how to think about how to engage with all of this. And the kind of conscious 
acceptance of uh, conflicts and limitations and um, irrationality and fortune and anger and emotion and all these things kind of swelling together, um, being an unavoidable kind of aspect of, of, of the kind of world we're, be- we're in, but but being a bit more honest about these uh, conflicts and and the costs that come with different courses of action feels to me at least like a start in terms of a partial response or way of dealing with it. I've found, um, I found it subtly transformative to um, deal, um, especially with my students, uh, with a, a disposition of generosity and frankness. <laughs> mm. um, because one of the things that I find is that um, the institution I work in is not capable of either of those things. <laughs> so that when you actually stop behaving with a scarcity mindset, um, and you, you start really giving of yourself generally, but also just telling the truth in plain English, um, real real Dutch styles of just like frank truth. Mm. Um, people respond to it quite brilliantly and a different set of social relations can open up. They don't always, mm. um, but it, it does. If you, if you do emanate that, um, that, that energy, energy and those practices, then some of it boomerangs back in really positive ways. So I think that there are things that, we all can do that are agentic and some of them just come down to certain habits and dispositions of, and ways of relating to people in an ordinary way, <laughs> even civility, even the way that we conduct ourselves towards strangers. I mean, one of the things that really upsets a lot of people I speak to is the, and we spoke about this in one of our previous discussions, just like just the ordinary bullshit behaviors, incivility that you have in public anonymous spaces with just strangers being dicks to one another for no reason mm. <laughs> and to no benefit of their own, tailgating being a, a case in point. We need to stop doing that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I I take this framing from from Kant of thinking about, thinking the logic of as if, right? As if. And... Mm acting as if your behavior will be replicated and even if you have no confidence actually it will be replicated you you know work like thinking or acting as if it will have some impact because uh, we have to find a like giving up is is not an option right no um, and the thing about giving up is that you know you it will still be there the next morning you know, and having to make breakfast and do all these things, like giving up is not giving up, you know.